last week, which we'll review just a few things from <coughs> over the next over the next few minutes. Um, but we're going to see this morning from Mark chapter twelve, the first twelve verses, a rejection and a radical reversal. Right, two ideas that we're going to uh, seek to, to tackle this morning, along with this thirty thousand foot, uh, you know, main idea summary that we'll discuss in just a moment. But uh, Anna Jones, um, who uh, oversees our, you can come on up, Anna, um, who oversees uh, for all that Anna does, um, she's going to read our passage this morning from Mark chapter twelve, verses one through twelve. I will, but it wasn't just media team who helped with banner. We That's had a true. lot of yeah. extra helpers, so thank you for everybody who yeah. donated their time and skills to help us get that done. <laughs> All right, so this morning we will begin Mark 12, verses 1 through 12. Uh, read along with me. This is the reading of God's word. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. And they took him and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir, come. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner, owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Anna. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word uh, and for just your compassion and your grace, your goodness, um, and the time to just be um, to just be uh, affirmed in these truths uh, that we've already sang about uh, from Mark chapter 12 this morning. We're grateful um, for your great compassion, and we do pray that you um, would uh, soften our hearts this morning um, to and by your word um, that Christ might indeed uh, come to occupy the central position of our lives. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So here, here's, a, here's a reality that I believe that we can all uh, affirm together. Right? That no one enjoys rejection. Right? That's not, a, not an experience for, uh, for many of us who, that we look back on with and, and fond Memory. I'm currently uh, watching a, a little television show you guys might be familiar with called Parks and Rec on Netflix. Um, some of you guys probably watched a lot of that over the past couple of days. Um, now, a, a couple of weeks ago, I watched uh, a, a, an episode that really stood out to me in light of what we see this morning in Mark chapter 12. I watched this episode where um, Ann Perkins, right? Um, so some of you guys know, I feel like I know her. I re- we reference her like she's a real person, right? Um, which she is, but not her character. You get at the point, right? Um, Ann Perkins is, uh, is broken up with by this guy that she She's dating, right? Named named Chris, uh, who is moving um, out of Pawnee and, and to Indianapolis for work. 
And now what makes the situation really, really funny and interesting is that Anne isn't aware that she has actually been broken up with before Chris moves from Pawnee to um, Indianapolis. And so um, she comes to suspect that Chris is cheating on her. And so she drives to Indianapolis to confront him only to find out through their conversation that she had actually been dumped weeks earlier. Um, And so there's an essence in which she's actually dumped twice, right? Um, Because uh, it's, it's clear based on her response to the realization that she has been rejected that she desperately wishes she had understood her rejection the first time, right? So that, so that she would not have had to endure it for a second. Now, last week, we observed an interruption of the chief priest's framework, right? And, and, and an unwillingness from them to submit to this drastically different framework than they had anticipated. And this framework centers on the person and the authority of Jesus. This morning we see in Mark chapter 12, a judgment parable from Jesus. We see a judgment parable from Jesus that speaks towards God's pursuit of the wicked. We see a judgment parable from Jesus that speaks towards his judgment over evil. And finally, the restoration of his son. In Mark 12, 1 through 12, we see a bold rejection and we see a radical reversal. We see a bold rejection and we see a radical reversal. Reversal, And so there's an idea that we might begin to, to latch on to that's going to be supported and informed by what we see through these two points. It's this, that while judgment of the wicked is sure, that while judgment of the wicked is sure, there is hope through the exaltation of our resurrected king. Right, that, that while judgment of the wicked is sure, and we can say this, in fact, in our call to worship this morning from Psalm 146, there's a line in which the psalmist reflects on the judgment of God for the wicked. And so when we step back and we, can say, and we say that, that there is a, a surety, that there is an assurance from Scripture that wickedness will be judged, we see in this story that reality alongside the hope that exists through the exaltation of our resurrected king. And so let's begin by unpacking this idea of of the bold rejection that we see beginning in verses 1 through 5. Look there with me at verses 1 through 5. And he, being Jesus began to speak to them in parables. Now, what are parables? We, we've been through a series of parables already as we've, as we've journeyed through Mark's gospel. And as we've gone along and we've, we've found ourselves in these particular places in Scripture, and in this gospel specifically, we've talked about how parables are these, these stories, right, that are almost multi-layered, aren't they? Right, that there's a that there's a there's a top layer, and then there's an underlying spiritual truth, a reality that's being communicated through the telling of of the parable. And so we see Jesus communicating in this way again, following his his cleansing of the temple, his cursing of the fig tree, his explanation of the cursed fig tree, and now his teaching there in in the temple. 
we see him begin this, this story before those that are present. He says, a man planted a vineyard. He planted a vineyard and he, he put a fence around it and he dug a pit for the wine press and he built a tower. And so as we read through verse 1, this is just kind of a a side note. There is this essence in which we are are reflecting back on God's creation in the beginning. We see this this farm, right? This vineyard that is being produced, right? It's being developed. It's being constructed by, by this landowner. And we see in, uh, in verse, verse 1 that the landowner, having completed his work, leases the property to some tenants. And then he went away into another country. Verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Right, these, these tenants had been employed to work the vineyard, right? To, to gather its fruit, the harvest. And then we see the servant sent back to retrieve some of the fruit from the vineyard. Verse 3, how did the tenants respond? Well, it says that they, they took him and they, they beat him, right? They, they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed, Verse 4, again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So in verses 1 through 8, we are seeing, we've addressed 1 through 5 here, but we're going to go on to, uh, to verse 8 in just a few moments. We're seeing the redemptive narrative. Okay, we're, we're seeing in verses 1 through 8, God's relationship with his covenant people from his perspective. Right? How does God perceive his relationship with this covenant people? Well, we get a glimpse in verses 1 through 5. We see here Jesus discussing the wickedness of his people, right? And their sin against God and their fellow man through the idolatry of their hearts. You see, Jesus is presenting here for Israel their sin failed in a manner that is intended to display both their wickedness as well as the character of God, right? We see his persistence in the landowner, right? We see his patience. We see his sovereignty. And finally, we will see his judgment. In verses 1 through 5, what we just read, along with verses, verses 6 through 8, we see the story of God's people's response to the sending of the prophets. In this case, right, in the context of the story that we're seeing Jesus tell, the servants. And there is incredible irony in all of this. Okay, the the, the irony of it all is that God, before the foundations of, of the world, 
manifesting itself in the book of Genesis, we see him setting his love and affection upon a people, right? a, a covenant people. We see a pagan that he would set his grace upon, setting him apart from other pagan peoples for the purpose of bearing fruit. And blessing the nations, ushering in the promised seed of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You see, here's what we can't do. We cannot read Mark 12, 1 through 12, 1 through 5, 6 through 8 in isolation from this redemptive story that God is telling, going all the way back to what we see in Genesis. Or we can't we can't read Mark twelve in isolation. We have to see it from the bigger context. And so, as we understand the relationship between the tenets of Mark twelve and the loving affection that we'll discuss more in just a few moments of the landowner, we're beckoning back to the response of God's people historically. Because here's what we can say based on what is observable from the New Testament and on into and on into the Gospels, that God's people historically have not only failed to bear fruit, which they have, but in a state of grave rebellion and disobedience, we see their hearts continuously gripped by idolatry. As, as God's people, God's covenant people, repeatedly turn from God and pursue after shadows and myths. Right? We see from God's people this desire to reflect that which is observable in the world and in the culture around them. If you want a great example of this, you can go and you can read through 1 and 2 Samuel, in which we see this incredible tension for God's people as they desire, while they have a king who rules and reigns over them, outside of time and outside of space, desiring a king like the nations have. Right there, they repeatedly, God's people repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, buying into what the culture is selling them. And we see from God, again, throughout this story, an effort to draw their attention back to Him. And so, how does He do that? How does God seek to accomplish this? Speaking to the rebellious hearts of His people, drawing them back to Himself. Well, He sends messengers, doesn't He? Right? God sends servants and, and prophets to call out to his people, to address the sin that exists in them and the sin that is being manifest through them to the point, to the point that God's people essentially become extremely frustrated and fed up with this continued emphasis on their rebellion. God pointing out their waywardness, reminding them of his good design and purpose for them, to which God's people repeatedly respond wickedly. In fact, they respond in a manner that mirrors the tenets of verse 12. And that is what Jesus is driving home here. It's no secret we can consider history itself, both what the Bible has to tell us as well as what historians have to say about what took place during this time. We see the rebellion of God's people. In Jeremiah 20, 
for example, we see a prophet. Right? We see a servant similar to the servants of verses 1 through 3 sent to his people to speak a message from the heart of God addressing his rebellious people. And in, in Jeremiah 20, we see Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, beaten by his people. Now, the irony of this is that Jeremiah loved God's people. He had a heart for God's people, and he desired them to live in obedience, enjoying the joy and the favor that is found in relationship and intimacy with him. And how do his people respond? Well, they beat him, and we see it in Jeremiah 20. And we might go, man, that is incredibly harsh, (laughs) right? To which I would say absolutely it is. Only it's light work compared to what we see from God's people as it pertains to God's prophet Isaiah, who who commentators almost universally agree was brutally beaten, pursued, and sawn in half by the king of the southern kingdom. In 2 Chronicles chapter 24, we see God again sending his servants to share his heart with his people. And yet again, they will not listen. In verse 20, we see the spirit of the Lord come to Zechariah, leading him to stand before the people and proclaim. This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper. Your rebellion will not produce prosperity because you have forsaken the Lord. He has forsaken you. Only in verse 21, we see the people plot against Zechariah. And by order of the king, get this, bold, blatant, hard-hearted rebellion, they stone him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. And now, in most recent days, we see John, right, the the baptizer, beheaded by King Herod for what? Well, for, for calling out against his sin and rebellion. We see in this parable the evil of God's people. And yet there is this incredible contrast. And the contrast exists in relation to the persistence and the patience of the good landowner. There's this question that we have to ask ourselves as we read through this portion of Mark chapter 12. And that is this. How might we respond? Let's place ourselves in position of the landowner. And consider the rebellion of these tenants who are working this property that he has produced, that he has developed, that he has built, and left them in care of. As we consider those who are listening to Jesus tell this story, I would imagine that their reaction is very similar to our reaction. There's no doubt that at this point, those who are listening in are saying to themselves something along the lines of this, that it is time to, to end this relationship, right? that it is time to, to end the tenants 
And given the obvious wealth of the landowner, right, given that he has produced this incredible farm, this vineyard that we see in the first two few verses, there's no doubt that he has at his disposal countless resources and men who could put a stop to all of this. And so we imagine the surprise of the people as they, as they trek along with the Jesus with the story to hear that there is indeed one final encounter to which we look to verse 6. Verse 6 says this, that he, the landowner, had still one other. The servants had been sent, but there is one more, a beloved son. We're going to talk a little bit about what that means in just a moment. Finally, he, being the landowner, sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, hey, this is, this is the heir, right? Like this is the heir of all that is possessed by the wealthy landowner. And so let's do this. We see this, this conspiring take place. Let's come together, right? And let's, let's kill him. And as a result, his inheritance, we see in, in, uh, in Mark 7, Mark 12, verse 7, his inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and they, and they killed him. And they threw him out of the vineyard. In verses 6 through 8, there's a, there's a sense in which the uniqueness of the son is being emphasized. We see it in verse 6. Many, many servants had come before, but now we see that there is this one that is, that is beloved. Now, what, what do we learn from this term? What do we learn about the belovedness of the son? Well, we learn that the son is unlike any other. Right, that the Son is completely and utterly unique. That he stands in contrast to the servants. And that he is elevated into a position, to a posture above them. And yet through the story, we see the Father's willingness to send the Son to a disobedient people who have displayed incredibly hard hearts and evil to the servants that had been sent before. As well as, and this can't miss, we can't miss this, right? As well as the willingness of the Son to embrace right, the evil of those who are positioned on this property. Surely they will respect the son, right? Surely they'll respect the son, the people must be saying. Only that's not the case. And through the coming of the son, we see finally the sin that reigns in the tenants' hearts being exposed to a new degree, at a new level. Up until this point, there has been a, a senselessness to their cruelty, hasn't there? Like, what is this all about? Why? Like, why this senseless cruelty from the tenants of this property towards the servants of the landowner who had employed them to work it? You see, but now we see it begin to come to the surface, right? We see that it is, in fact, not senseless, but it's selfish. 
Right? They had come to work the land, only at some point, possessing it had become their focus. And in verse 7, they see the opportunity in a, in a final, bold act of rebellion. Right? Gripped by sin, how do they respond? Well, they kill the son. They kill the beloved one of verse 6, the unique one, and they discard his body. They toss it out of the vineyard. And in their mind, they deserved the inheritance of the son, and thus they desired to an unhealthy degree the inheritance of the son. That which they had labored over had, in a sense, right, become the object of all of their love and their affection. There's a term that we use that we're familiar with that helps us to understand what's taking place in the hearts and the minds of these people, as we see just this horrific scene play out before us. And that term is idolatry. We see that there has been produced within the heart of these tenants an idol. I love what Tim Keller has to say as it pertains to idolatry and its connection to the things that we serve. Listen to what he says here. I'll read this a few times so that you you can consider it. The things that you dream about in your spare time, he says, are ultimately the things that you serve. Let me say that one more time. The things that you dream about in your spare time are ultimately the things that you serve. And so let's consider this, how it relates to and pertains to what we see from the tenants. At some point, the tenants had ceased from serving the landowner. That which they had been employed for in the very beginning. And instead, they began to serve their own interests, their own selfish desires. These things that, that we serve... That, we, that capture our attentions, oftentimes find themselves in a position that is reserved for Christ and Christ alone. They begin to lord over us and reign over us. This is true of the tenants in Mark 12. And here's the hard reality, that it's true for you and I as well. And so we ask this question as we consider the rebellion of the tenants in Mark 12. We ask this question, what is it that captures our attention? What is it that captures our attention that becomes the object, the subject of all of our service? Right? Is it it idols or or self-interests or Christ? Right? It's, 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 it's not hard to diagnose. Right? We, can, we can simply do it by this. We step back and we observe the landscape of our existence. Right? Our, our hearts and our, our minds. That which we consider and that which we dream about. And if we step back and we, and we acknowledge and if we do true inventory of our hearts and our desires, then we find there displayed for us that which rules and reigns over us. And so what is it? 
Right? What is it for you? And, and what, is it, what is it for me? This passage, these first few verses challenge us. They convict our hearts. Right? And they force us to begin asking difficult questions like this. It's not so much like what do we serve, but it's who do we serve. And as, even as we go into the realm of who do we serve, we have to begin to understand how the gospel and God's story and plan of redemption informs that. Because when we talk about who we serve, we're not talking ultimately about interpersonal relationships. Because if we serve others simply for the point of service to others, it's misguided service. And oftentimes through it, we see idolatry begin to well up within our own hearts. It becomes a source of pride and arrogance. And so we have to step back and we have to go, if it's not ultimately about service to others, and it's not ultimately about service to things, then what is it ultimately about? It's about service to a king, right? It's about service to a king that then informs the way that we go about living as we serve other people. If the audience was anxious in verses 3 through 5, right, then they are without a doubt totally perplexed coming out of verses 6 through 8. What the landowner or what we can understand God will do, he has displayed such persistence and patience and compassion That's exactly what Jesus says. Through this repeated sending and sending and sending, despite the evil that's being extended. But we see there that there will be a destruction brought to the tenants. That they, they would be judged and that the vineyard would be given over to others. We see in verse 9 the judgment of these rebellious workers and the landowner's employment of a new people, which leads us into verses 10 through 12 and this radical reversal that God brings about. Right? We, we, we see here Jesus again point towards his resurrection from the dead, right? Jesus transitions into a, 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 into a reading from Psalm 18, 118, verses 22 through 23, which ironically enough is the same psalm that was shouted by the people upon his entrance into the city just a few days earlier. We see clearly this understanding from Christ, As it pertains to who he is and why he has come. Look with me at verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. We see in verses 10 and 11, Jesus's claim as the rejected stone, right? Slain by the tenants and cast aside as rejected and worthless, 
positioned by the Father as the capstone. And so what is the capstone? How do we, how do we, uh, how do we jump into what we see here in, in Mark chapter 12, what we see from Psalm chapter 118, verses 22 through 23, and understand the importance of the capstone. That which Jesus is being, is being laid as. We see that the capstone ensures stability for an entire structure, right? The capstone ensures that that the structure, that the foundation, that which is being produced remains sure and solid, that everything aligns itself appropriately and fits into place. We see Christ... Resurrected from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins. Who in verse 11 is made to be marvelous. This event and and this work and this scene is made to be marvelous in our eyes. And so what does it look like? Well, Paul helps us in Ephesians chapter 1 begin to grasp this truth in a post-resurrection way. Listen to, what, listen to what Paul has to say in Ephesians chapter 1. He's explaining this. Right? He's explaining this idea that we see on display in verses 10 and 11. Paul writes this. God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things. And so when we see the rejection of the Son in verses 1 through 9, when we see the evil of the, of, the, of the tenants and the grace and the compassion of the landowner. And then we come into this, this retelling of, the, of this psalm from, from a redemptive perspective. We see Jesus pointing towards the reality of what is to take place just a few days. In fact, I believe at this point in Mark 12, we are three days from the crucifixion of the Christ. And Jesus here is pointing at the work that the father, the landowner, persistent and caring, loving and compassionate is to accomplish through the rejection of the son. This is God's redemptive work. Right? And this is God's redemptive work, as we've stated already before the foundations of the world, presented to humanity for the first time in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Why is this event that we are three days out of at this point in Mark chapter 12 made to be marvelous in the eyes of God's people? Well, because it's in this passage that we find the purpose and the means of Christ's great victory over death at the cross. Right? God's people and hard-hearted humanity as a whole have sought the execution of God since sin's entrance into the world in Genesis chapter 3. We see within this passage our own idolatry along with this grand assurance 
that through the rejection of the Son, and that by the rejection of the Son, there is this splendor that is brought to the scene, and that the rejection is not the end, but that through the reversal that takes place, there is in fact hope for a rebellious creation. We, we see here the steadfast love of the Father and His justice meeting at the cross so that by grace, through faith, we can now be adopted as opposed to, and this is important, as opposed to, be, as opposed to being separated as an object of eternal wrath. Let me say that one more time. Through the mercy and the justice that we see meeting at the cross, we see the means by which, through grace and faith, we can now know adoption as sons and daughters, as opposed to experiencing separation and judgment and becoming the object of God's eternal wrath. Why? Well, because this wrath that is due the rebellious people has been poured out upon the son. And so it's not as though the landowner forgets his justice, but it's that his justice is satisfied in the person and the work of Christ. And so as we, as we begin to close our time together, we have to ask ourselves a series of questions based on what we see from these first 12 verses in Mark chapter 12. And we're, we're essentially asking this, how does Christ desire those listening in to respond to what he has had to say up until this point? And then, right, we, we cross over and we go, okay, well, if this is God's desired response for the audience present in Mark chapter 12, how do we, by way of their response and his intended response for them, come to a conclusion as it pertains to how we respond to what we see from God's word? Well, I think that we can ask this. Or we can ask this question. What is my response to the exposed idolatry of my heart? What is my response to the exposed idolatry of my heart in light of the patient persistence of God and his pursuit of me? We get a glimpse at the response of those listening in in verse 12. Look with me at verse 12. It says that they were seeking to arrest him. In light of all of the things that have been said by Jesus that we've seen this morning, their desire is to arrest him, but they fear the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable, get this, against them. And so we talked way back as we began our time in Mark about how the Lord opens the hearts of his, of his listeners. He unstops the ears and clears the eyes so that the parables that Christ tells might make sense, that they might understand this spiritual undertone of what's being communicated. And we see in verse 12 that there is a sense in which they are grasping exactly what Jesus is talking about and exactly who Jesus is talking about. And so how do they respond? Well, it says that they left him and they went away. That they left him. 
and they, and they walked away. You see, Christ desires from those present, from those present, I'm sorry, a, a repentance and a faith that results in transformation. That's the desired response, right? As Christ communicates in this incredible way, right, this, this story of, of love and, and evil, there's a desire within his heart that as those present listen in, they, that they might perceive that the story is about them and respond with repentance, right? With cries for, for mercy. Sadly, in the context of Mark 12, we see that the religious leaders are, are blinded continuously again and again to, to the truth of not just Jesus' parable, but the redemptive narrative of God. Right? As opposed to submitting to his lordship, they conspire against him. As opposed to seeking refuge in the king, they seek refuge from the king. They flee him. Until, in just three days' time, they would seize him, And in an ultimate act of rebellion and rejection, they would kill the son, as foretold of what we see in the first nine verses. We see through these first 12 verses of Mark 12 that while judgment of the wicked is sure, that there is hope through the exaltation of the resurrected king. Right there's, there's hope for our rescue from sin and strength to live in faith through the rejection of this world. Right, we sang it uh, as we as we came into our time in Mark chapter twelve this morning. Right, this this reality that in Christ, right, the refuge and the rescue that we find in Him. That while we might experience rejection in this world, that no tongue can bid us to depart. Right, that, that, that while we live in this world as a pilgrim people who are destined to experience again and again and again rejection on behalf of the culture and the world around us, flowing out of a hardness of heart and a grave rebellion against God, we can rest assured that our King remains with us. Right, And that because of the rejection of our king, there is hope for God's people in the midst of rejection in this world to persevere. Not by our own strength, but by the strength that he provides his people by way of his spirit. And so we ask, what is my response to the exposed idolatry of my heart in light of the patient persistence of God and his pursuit of me? Seen most clearly at the cross. Do we seek refuge in the king, or are we seeking refuge from the king? To which we can go back to the very beginning and we can say, man, justice for evil is a reality, that it is certain. And so let us run to our king for refuge, knowing that he is faithful because of the work of the beloved son. The same term that's spoken over Jesus at his baptism That because of the work of the beloved son, the unique one, the authoritative one, if we consider what we saw last week, that there is hope for you and I. The second question that we ask is this. How does a cross-marveling life compare with my current posture? 
How does a cross-marveling life compare with my current posture? Am I currently, right, exercising and and displaying a cross-marveling posture? That's exactly what we see Jesus encouraging as we consider his connection with the psalm. Are we, are we, are we there, right? And if we're not, then the question is this, what needs to change? Right? If we're not currently practicing at a cross-honoring posture, then what is it that needs to be changed? What is it that needs to be abandoned? What is it that needs to be killed? What idols of our hearts are exposed that need to be put to death this morning so that we might exist in service to our king in any and every way. These are the questions that we're, that we're confronted with through this passage. And so um, I would encourage us corporately and individually to, to consider these questions with repentant hearts as we take the Lord's Supper, remembering his death and his resurrection and his return, our rescue by way of our rescue. Mm-hmm.